0: All right, so that was just a little beginning devotional, but it was good, huh? I love I loved the fact that that the Lord has given me so many wonderful experiences of traveling the world, going and seeing these places, and having my, my feet touch the, the very Word of God in many ways. I mean, I, I remember drinking from the well at Paul's well when we lived down in Tur- Turkey, and right near there was was Tarsus. So we would drive down to Tarsus a couple of hours, and I'd drink water from Paul's well, and I, I just love the fact that my lips touched the Word of God in that way. It's just such an, a, neat, a neat thing that the Lord gave to me. All right, so how was your homework this week? Hard again. Okay, I've already heard complaints, and I know it is hard, and I'm telling you, uh, it, it's kicking my rear end, too. I mean, working late into the out hour, hours into the day, spending hours and hours on this, um, But I'm going to restate, stay high. Remember, you are looking at the forest, not the trees, okay? What what I am seeing in the book of Ezekiel that God's desire for us is to see, yes, it's kind of like what we did with Matthew. Yes, you need to see that all these things are going on. There are actual events which make them historical. There are true-to-life things that were taking place. There are some things, because we're Gentile-minded, we don't get, we don't fully understand. We certainly don't know all their history. We don't know all these people and where they were on the timeline and all that. So we can get lost in looking and researching to try to fit it all together. And if you want to do those things, awesome. Go for it. But know this, you don't have to go into that mu- that much work. If you don't want to, don't. Just do what Kay asks of you and and try to relax a little bit with it because what we want to do that's more importantly than that is as we are moving through this and I'm starting to feel like I'm, I've got my feet my feet grounded. Starting to, are you starting to feel that way a little bit better about, okay, I think I kind of get the, uh, the feel of Ezekiel and the flow of what's going on here. Um, but what's most important is that as we move through this, we are going to see this big picture of what is God's purpose in this. What does God want us to do? to know. Have you begun to start to pick up on what that is yet, what the major theme is in this book? Does anybody have some points that they'd like to throw out there as possibilities for us to chew on a little bit? He is God. God. Okay, and in what way, so in what way are we seeing that he is God as we go through this book? Okay. Okay. Saying that all these words I've said are not going to happen. Well, they're going to happen. And like, then they did. And then they did. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 I, I, the message I see in the beginning is that God is holy and we are not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Almost kind of parallels a little bit with Leviticus, doesn't it? You're holy, you know, I'm holy and you are not. I am the Lord and right. you are not. Right. <laughs> so we do we do see that key repeated phrase in here of. Of, and then you will know that I am the Lord, right? And so we seem to, to have that repeated, repeated, repeated. And along with that, what are some other things? Yes, Lisa. and says, Hey, looky, mm-hmm. no matter what you think, I'm still God. Right? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be leading my people. Oh, boy. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you that for for me personally, and for anyone who of you who are in positions of leadership, and, and many of you are, um, it, it, what a high calling that is to understand that God. Uh, James talks about that that th- there's a higher degree of accountability for those who are going to step into any kind of a role where they are they are actively trying to lead God's people in truth, right? Particularly because. Yeah. What does God think about his truth? What does he say when we get into thirteen and, and even on uh about those false prophets? Yeah. I am against you. Right. Whew. They they got some they're gonna be in some big trouble if they don't re- <laughs> if they don't repent. That's basically what he's telling them. Now, um Well they're actually got the point now where he's not even gonna accept their repentance. He's bring that to that. Well, I think what you know why? Because yes. Wh- what does he say? Okay. As we, l- I gave you guys a review of themes, piece of paper there. Okay. To kind of show you what's going on with the flow of thought here. Um, you're going to see that. In the, I used one font setting to show you. Con- the first three chapters show us context setting, right? They show it introduces us to, sev- all the major characters. Israel. It introduces us to God. And his titles, it introduces us to Ezekiel and what his role is, right? So that gives us our context. It also gives us our historical time frame as to when these things are occurring. Then it moves in, starting in 4 through 7, to his first vision. And I, what I did is above the title for the, the chapter, the chapter theme, I put in there the visual part or the the allegory part that God has given to us through Ezekiel's writing about what it was he wanted to visually give them so that they would understand the biblical truth. So the biblical truth is your theme title that I've done in the, bo- in the darker, bolder lettering. So for instance, I, the visualization in chapter 4 was that, was that there was a brick that was before Ezekiel's face, remember, and it was inscribed with Jerusalem. And he, and he was t- uh, with the name of uh, Jerusalem. And so, then, in that visualization, was the truth that there was going to be a besieging and a banishment for Jerusalem, that God was setting his face against Jerusalem, right? All right, so you can see as you follow through in this, this idea then that there's judgment of Jerusalem in, in the sight of the nations. That, that was visually done with the, with the sword-cut head. Does anybody understand about the sword-cut head of a priest? Why is that a problem? And what is the message there? Just so you know the history on that one. Yeah. When we remember when we did our, our Leviticus study about one of the rules about the priests was do not cut their hair. They're not allowed to use a razor upon their upon their face or their head, right? And what was the idea then of using a sword in that? What was symbolic about that sword as opposed to a razor? Yeah, what is it and what is a sword what is a sword used for? Warfare, right? So the visualization of that was him, him using a sword of warfare then to defile himself, correct? Because he was defiling himself as a priest by doing this, yes? Okay, so humiliation, 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 and defilement, right? So then look at the title. Jerusalem is going to be judged where? In the sight of the nations. In the sight of the nations. Would you say that's humiliating? Would you say that would be a defilement of their land and of their holy places when this occurs? So there's your visualization, and there's your reality. So that's why he gave them that visual of the sword-shaven head, because it's defilement, it's total humiliation, and that's what he wanted Israel to understand was going to happen to them. Okay? We had Ezekiel's face set then toward the mountains. And in this picture in chapter 6 was God's hand against the high places that they had built, right? Then in 7, he ends up, uh, he concludes that vision, that first vision was saying the end is upon you according to your ways. What do they mean according to your ways? What does that mean? It's, it has to do with the fact that they brought it upon themselves according to your ways. That's why the end is coming. You have, have you ever said that to your, to your children or whoever? Well, you did it to yourself, right? You did it to yourself. You brought it on yourself. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. He said, the end is coming upon you according to your ways. Okay, then comes chapter 8, starts uh, the second vision. Now, I don't know where the second vision ends yet because we're still moving along and I don't know for sure. But I know it starts in chapter 8. And the first thing we saw was, was Ezekiel is taken by his vision to the temple in Jerusalem, right? And there, what does he see happening? These great abominations at God's temple. And so then in 9, in chapter 9, the vision gives us those six executioners and the man in linen with the writing case, right? And we talked about the writing case last week, and I brought that in for show and tell. So you got to see a writing case. This writing case was upon his loin, it says. So w- in that visualization of executioners and the one with, with the writing case, what was the double message in there? Yep. And And the others would be judged, right? right. So, judgment, and then when in there he says, and judgment is going to start from where? God's sanctuary. God's sanctuary. Now, just to pause for a little moment on that one, think of us that God's judgment begins at his sanctuary. What does that tell you about the potential of? For those who even are serving at God's sanctuary, are they all saved? No, not all. No, not all. Sadly to say, no, not all. Are all pastors who preach from a pulpit saved? No. Are all Sunday school teachers, all precept Bible study teachers, are all. Um, all missionaries who are bringing about churches, people who are sharing the gospel, who are out starting churches, are they all saved? Not necessarily. And so here what he's saying is, look, judgment starts from God's sanctuary. And when we get into where we're at now, we're going to see where God is able to distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous, the clean from the unclean. Because why? What does he do? He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart, and boy, did that take me flying into the New Testament, right? So judgment starts from God's sanctuary, but do not touch those that are marked. Comfort is given to us in the message of judgment. Yes, there's judgment, but for those of you who are marked, have peace in your heart, right? All right, Ezekiel then in chapter 10 sees again another uh, elaborate message. description of those cherubim, correct? In the conclusion, then, what does he tell us about those cherubim? Pardon? They are the same four living beings that he saw before, right? So he makes the connection. We kind of hashed that out last week about the fact that he had been trained as a priest. He knows what the function and the the look um, assigned position or, or role of the cherubim was all about. And so when he saw the cherubim again in, in c- close of, uh, connection with the throne and the, the appearance of God's glory, then he put all of it together and he said, yep, it's the same as what I saw at the beginning. These here, these cherubim, these are the same as the four living beings I saw before. So he makes the connection on that. And when, once he realizes that he is looking at the cherubim, he is looking at the true glory of God. Because remember, what, what we have in the tabernacle um, uh, through the uh, articles that God instructed Moses and those with him to build and to make, right? Those are the shadow. That's what Hebrews tells us. 8, 9, and 10 says, these things which you're looking at here on this earth, these are the shadow. Where is the true tabernacle? Heaven. Where is the true throne of God? In heaven. What you have here on earth is the shadow of it. And so he's saying, okay, what you saw were the cherubim, the real ones, right? And then when he saw the real ones, what did he see take place in in chapter 10? What happened? He saw God leaving his temple. That, t- that visualization he had given to his people, that place where he said he would dwell with them, <laughs> if they would be my people, I will be their God, right? Now he's leaving there. Now, when he leaves, why does he leave? Well, chapter 11 opens that up for us and tells us why. What, what was the first thing he saw in the vision in chapter 11? The there were abominations taking place. But what is the first thing he saw in chapter 11? What are they? The, there's 25 of them, 25 elders. Now, who are the elders? D- by description, it tells you right in the text, who are they? They are the leaders of God's people. And d- do you find it interesting that the, that the number 25 is used? What does that tell you? Onesies and twosies, just a few here and there? It's like an overwhelming statement that Perversion and abomination has gripped hold of not only my people, but the leaders of my people. And therefore, God is going to do what? What does he say then in 11 that he does concerning this? What happens? He leaves. He leaves his people. In chapter 11, he, he talks about... Um, hold on a second. Let me open my 11. Uh, I think this is the one where he says, and for that reason... He had to leave because of the things that they were doing. It might have been in ten. On account of this, he has to go. Right? Was that where was that that particular statement? Does somebody really remember? Um, there was he. He literally says he has to go because of their abominations. And for this reason, I have to go, he says. I can't remember now where it was, but I remember that. And it, and, and it shows then in 25 that these leaders, and there was a massive amount of them, 25 of them at the temple gate entrance who devised iniquity against God's, God and his word, right? And so God's glory departs Jerusalem, but then he gives, you, gives us a double-sided message once again. What's he going to bring? Judgment, but there'll be a remnant. There will be a remnant. He says then the remnant will what? Will return. Now, have we seen the remnant fully return in the way that God is speaking about through Ezekiel? Although there has been a partial fulfillment of this through the ages, we know that at one point along the timeline, when the Medes and the Persians took uh, uh, over the kingdom, They they took over Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom and wiped it out, basically like Daniel's vision. They crushed that part of the head, and now they are the king. They allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild, correct? But have they fully done all the things that we are seeing God is saying that one day they will do as his people? They will wipe out these, these false idols. They will fully be his people. They will walk in his ways. He will be their God. I mean, we don't see that yet fully for Israel, do we? So although God has had, through history, partial fulfillments of this, what we can also say is that what is there yet to come? And they get there by 2 of them. Being yes, that's exactly right. When we did our revelation course, we saw in Zechariah that two-thirds, eventually what's going to happen in history is God is going to one more time bring judgment, is he not? Boy, so what we're learning about right here in Ezekiel is really just a, it's like looking back in history to see what's going to happen in the future. That's in, in, in some ways. Part, now, what we have for us, like they had for them, is we have the words of John in the letter of uh, Revelation, correct? What did they have? As far as the word. And who was their prophet in particular that they should have been looking back at and going, oh, yeah? Well, there was Isaiah first and Jeremiah specifically. When did Jeremiah uh, teach and um, prophesy? What was his time frame? Yeah, while well, all this was going down, <laughs> just before they began these these three sieges, and into a, until just after the time when the temple falls. If you have a Bible that has a um, a visualization, and I know Kay has a, might be in our appendix. She has a uh, chart. Yes, it is. It's right here. On page 223 in your appendix, if you've still got it there, this is the danger of these little charts. You pull them out and you stick them in where your homework is, and then you forget to put them back in your appendix, and then you're in trouble. But if you have this, you can take a look at this, and you can see where Jeremiah falls in relationship to what's, go, uh, what's going on historically at that time. They had the words of Jeremiah, just like you and I have the words of John, Right? And what we've seen in in this week and what we're going to begin to look through right now is what were the people's response to the word of God that was given to them? What God said, thus saith the Lord, right? This is what I will do, he says. And did they believe? Did Israel believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do? No, they did not. And so, therefore, they were not retaining the standard of sound doctrine they weren't loving God's word and accepting it fully that what he said he would do he will he will do and that's what we're looking at this week in our in our lessons so whew, good review hmm? okay yeah yay now we're on board and we're ready to move forward okay so let's start Let's start with chapter 12, and I'm going to do a couple of different things this morning. Last week, I s- exclusively hung, hung on the idea of taking you through each of the uh, keywords and finding our themes of each of our paragraphs, right? So this week, what I want to do, at least for right now, is in chapter 12, I want to look just at the major events, identifying the major parts of this vision or parts of of uh, God's prophetic word, had the imageries that God brings up to him. And I want to p- identify those and then look for the, the truth, the biblical truth, the message that God was giving to these people. So in chapter twelve, let's start there. The first thing is he tells Ezekiel that, that he has to do certain things, and when he tells him to do these certain things in verse six, what does he say he is that he is going to be for Israel? A sign. He's going to be a sign. Assigned to the house of Israel. That's in verse 6. Now, in regards to being a sign, what is it that he is supposed to do? Yeah, prepare a bag. What kind of a bag is this? Prepare baggage. (laughs) <laughs> and it was baggage for exile. Did you like my little picture on your chart? <laughs> yeah. The little guy with his luggage? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's preparing his baggage for exile in, in verse 3, it says. And then he's in verse um, 4. What does he tell him to do? Uh uh-huh. And? And then he's to, to do what, though? Yes, he's going to go out by night. He's going to go out in their sight. They're going to watch. He's supposed to dig a hole, dig a hole, and then go out in, at, in the evening in their sight. So he's to dig a hole. That's interesting because when we went in and saw how that actually worked itself out historically, we see, wow, God's word is true, right? Dig a hole and go out at evening. Interesting, huh? There's a clock in their sight so that they can see him, correct? Because he is to be their sign. And I'm going to put on here my little clock. Are you marking your time references with your little clock? Uh, Good job. I'm so proud to hear that. Okay, because those are really uh, important... particularly in historical records or time, when, there's, when there's timing of sequence of events, those things are super important. In this case, it simply identifies the fact that he gave a specific time of day that certain things were going to happen. And then when we went in to see the reality of them uh, through the recorded record of, of God's biblical record, then we saw that God was exactly right on with what he said was going to happen, digging a hole and going out at evening, right? Right. Now, he gives us some insight about this thing. He calls this vision what? There's an, a word introduced to us in verse 10, I think it is. Let me see if I can find it. Right. A burden. Did anybody look that word up? He said um Oops, wrong page. Here it is. Where is the word burden? I put verse 10. Verse 10. Oh, that's why. It's on the next page. Chapter 11, verse 10. There it is. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel so you will know that I am the Lord. That's not it. Oh, chapter 12. No wonder. Thank you. 12, 10. Then say... Thank you so much, you guys, for helping me. This is chapter 12. He says, um, say to them, thus says the Lord, this burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. So did anybody look up the word burden? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) I have to, are you telling me I have to, so I have to look up my notes? Is that what you're telling me? Now I have, I was sure somebody would have looked that one up. Where is my? You know what? I don't think I even printed it out. The burden. It means the prophecy. It means the heavy word. It means um, that which has to be carried. Okay. Which I think is very interesting, the idea of him carrying luggage out and the idea that he has a burden to carry. Now, why would this be a heavy word or, a, or a something that would be difficult to carry? Yeah, what's hard and what's big? Yeah, the the message itself, right? How is this a heavy burden to Ezekiel before the people? What was the message God gave Ezekiel when he appointed him to be this watchman and this prophet to Israel? He said, don't worry about what they say to you. And such because... Yeah. He said, some, basically, he was letting him know ba- back in chapter 3 that sometimes you're going to bring to them a message they don't like to hear. And for you, Ezekiel, that's going to be a heavy burden because you, they're not always going to like you very much. Yes. Yes. It can be a sign of mourning, or it can also be other things. Like, when it, there were lots of things on that idea, the, the, the further imagery that's produced, that's given to us in that vision about him covering his face. Did anybody else, besides the idea of mourning, did they see, did you see any other insights on that? Wasn't the king of Israel blinded? He was. Yeah. Yes, he was later. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, now, if a think about, yes, Susan. That's interesting, too. Yeah. Also, think about it in reality. Who is it that is going to have this blindfold or this thing over his face? Who is it? Well, in the vision, he's t- he's given a title. What's he called? Prince. The prince of the people, right? right? Of your your people. So in this case, we know through the cross-reference that we went to, this is their king, right? King Zedekiah. What would you say about... L- let's just make it practical. What if would you say if you saw President Obama covering his head and sneaking by night and sneaking between the walls to exit the White House? I think it's, whatever's happening is really bad. It's yeah. Bad. <laughs> really bad, and he's, and he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be identified. He wants to sneak out, right? H- how g- how, contrast that to where you see him standing at the podium in front of the press and shoulders high and head up and speaking with great authority. Do you see the contrast in that? So here we have in this imagery through this vision, him cloaking himself and covering his head and sneaking out by night like a like a worm, you know. Yeah, so in this vision, it's saying that Israel is going to be, exactly because, guess what, their supreme authority, the prince of their people, is sneaking out and leaving them, basically, right? <laughs> leaving them stranded. So here we see the sign, that we see that uh, the prophecy, or vision, and vision is called... A burden and this is in 1110, right? Twelve. And Twelve. I keep doing that, I'm so sorry. It, I do have it on here this way. You know what, ha- what it is that I've done is. I've got verse 11 as my key verse and on the top of my thing. So when I titled it, I put verse 11 as my key. And I keep seeing that on my page. And it's throwing me really off. So you guys just keep yelling at me. Okay, <laughs> so the, the prophecy and the vision is called a burden. Now, who does the prophecy pertain to? He says in here what? The prince. Okay. The prince of Jerusalem... And all who else? All the house of Israel. So even though all they're really giving us in the, vi- in the imagery of this vision is this one prince who is cowarding and sneaking out by night, it's, the effect of that is going to affect all of them. Not just him, but him and all of Israel are going to have an effect. So he, he talks about in verse 12, the prince is going to go out in the dark. He's going to dig a hole through the wall, right? That's what it says in verse 12. Um, what does it say in 13 about him? Because this kind of goes to what you were saying, Diane, about the, um, the blindfolded and how that might symbolically be. What does he say about him leaving? He won't see the land. He's not going to see the land, exactly. And he said even though he's going to be taken into Babylon, what? He will never see Babylon. Isn't that interesting? And th- it also gives one last tidbit about him in verse 13. What's going to happen to him there in, in Babylon? He's going to die there. So, and so then the next part of the vision imagery is about eating and drinking, right? Okay, so the next one is about eat, he's to eat bread and drink water. Doing what? Mm-hmm. In, in, oh, and quivering and so forth, right? And when he says that, what does that tell you? Fear. The idea of quivering and horror tells you fear. There's going to be something horrible that happens that causes them to have to eat their bread and to drink their water in quivering, right? Um, in verse 19, what does it say? They will eat their bread with... Anxiety and their land will be what? What's going to happen to their land? Interesting. Stripped of its fullness. What is that talking about? What is the fullness that they were that they had had, had for years? The land was blessed. Yes, there you go. Yielded it its fullness to them. Yeah. And now because of their sin. Right. So obey me, and I will bless, and your land will be fruitful. Your your wombs will be fu- fruitful. Your cattle will be fruitful. Your crops will be fruitful. There's the fullness, and so he says, "Your their land now will be stripped right. of its fullness." Why? On on account of the violence of all who live in it. Whoa. So he's literally he is telling him through this this is what's going to happen. You're going to eat your bread. And drink your water in quivering, and I'm going to strip you of all the things that I blessed you with because of your violence, because of your your abominations, because of your iniquities, correct? Now, we went to cross-references. This was fun. This is, my husband said last night, he said, that was my favorite part of the lesson, was going through the cross-references, because there he got to see how God actually did what he said he was going to do through this this vision now remember this vision is taking place and it's it's prior to the fall isn't it it's prior to God doing and fulfilling everything Uh, although in actuality these things had actually already been said even prior to Ezekiel they've been said through Jeremiah yet now Jeremiah is reiterating and he's saying to them okay this is it. God is going to do this now, right? And so we go to uh, Jeremiah twenty or 52, verses 1 through 16, and what actually happened. And I'm not going to write it down on here. It'll be on your chart. But tell me what actually does happen according to what you saw in the, that Jeremiah passage. Do you have your passage available? Yeah, yeah. there you go. In essence, that was good, James. In a nutshell, just what he said was going to happen, right? Did you find it uh, uncanny almost that literally line by line, each thing that was said through the imagery and through the words of the prophet, every single one of them happened? And then in the reality, you're going, oh, I see, right? I see what happened. He talks about... Um, the anger of the Lord came about uh, in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. So then in verse 4, it tells you the context setting back to Nebuchadnezzar, that he's the one who does this, right? He says, Nebuchadnezzar did what to the city of Jerusalem? He put a siege against it, right? And when he did that, he cut, what did he cut off? Once he built a siege around the wall of Jerusalem, he cut off what from them? All their food, all their water, all their supplies, and basically was doing what? Starving them out. So now when you go back to seeing the idea of eating bread and drinking water and quivering, there's the reality, right? Then he says um, um, that the king does something. What does the king do as, as things become really desperate? The food's gone, the water is scarce. They're they're terrified, they're surrounded, so now what does the king, and by the way, all of his army who's supposed to be protecting him. Yeah, by by night, did you know, that's why I marked that at evening part, because by night they literally dug a hole under the wall and they all are escaping, which I think is just horrific to think that the king and all of his army, and they're leaving the people, what do you call that about the ship? You know, the captain of the ship is supposed to go down with the ship. No, not this guy. He's escaping in the, in the, the middle of the night, cloaked, right, with his head covered and his face covered so the people couldn't see him and recognize him. He was sneaking out, right? Yep, and then he gets caught. So then what happens once he's caught? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so in verses 9, 10, and 11, it talks about how they bound him, how they slaughtered all the princes of Judah, and then they did what to Zedekiah? They gouged out his eyes. They blinded him. And so there's the fulfillment of the fact that he is going to go into captivity into Babylon, but what will he never see? He'll never see Babylon. Why? His eyes were cut, were, were cut out. That's exactly right. So and then in the conclusion of it we see in verses thirteen, um, what does King Nebuchadnezzar then do? Burn down. Burns down the house of the Lord. What had happened in the chapters just previous to this one? They yeah, but but what had happened concerning the glory of the Lord in his house? He had left. He left, and he said, I'm leaving because of your abominations, because of your great iniquities, and he departed the, the, first he departed the temple in one chapter, then in the next chapter, he departs Jerusalem, and he leaves them for their judgment, and now this judgment falls upon him, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys and burns the house of the Lord, and all the houses of Jerusalem, Huh? And all the houses, and, and e- even every large house he burned with fire. Mm-hmm. He broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. It's one of the things about Jerusalem, if you go there t- for a visit, is there's the only thing that was left standing at that time in, in, um, after that destruction was a retaining wall. Not the wall to... Th- you know, we talk about the wailing wall. Mm-hmm. That wailing wall is not of the temple. The temple was totally destroyed. Right, it's the retaining wall that was around the city and that's where they go now to do their worshiping and praying and so forth that's so it was the part of that retaining wall that was around the outside to hold basically to you know when he when they rebuilt the temple that second time not the first time but the second time when they went in the second time and they destroy they destroyed it which was in 70 AD um, they had, Herod had built up the temple mound area. He brought in soil and built it up, and he built a retaining wall around it. And that's what's, le- that is what is all that is left of that original, actually the second temple, not the first. But that's all that's left of that second temple is a retaining wall. And that's where we see them today. When you look at that, you can go, well, but that's not the temple, that's the retaining wall of the city, okay? All right, just a little tidbit, side, f- side note on that. All right, now, um, all right, so what we see then when we looked at Jeremiah 52 was literally word by word God's word exactly fulfilled, right? Exact fulfillment of all God said, right? Then we could have gone into Second Kings as well. Remember last week I had mentioned this verse in Second Kings 25. I actually had taken you to one that was a little bit further. Where remember they were talking about, now I'm going to judge you to the borders right? If you, keep, if you go into Second Kings 25, and if you keep reading on that, you see where, I, where Israel is pushed out and pushed out, and then the people are all, taken basically all the way to the borders and then exiled into, out of the land, right? So you see the fulfillment of that also. If you wanted to look at it in Jeremiah, you can also look at it in Second Kings 25. So there's a second record of that, okay? All right, now... Previously, um, God's word through Jeremiah, right? Let's see here. Let, let me just put this on here as I'm not sure how I should do that house of sign. I'm going to put it on here. Kay asked you to look at this Jeremiah twenty nine one through uh, fourteen, right? In twenty nine one to fourteen, and she sa- and in there, what had God told them that they were supposed to be doing, or what had God warned them about? Because it's not like Ezekiel is telling them something new, and all of a sudden they now know it, and, and there's nothing they can do and it, ha, ha, in parenting, you go, "I'm warning you whatever, right? don't make me come up there right or come down there or whatever. don't make me pull this car over, right We, we warn our children and we warn our children, right Did God do that? Had God not warned Israel and warned Israel and warned Israel? He, he, over and over. And one of the things at this point in history I- with these this particular tr- uh, southern tribes, they should have learned from what happened to their sister, the northern 10 tribes, what had happened to to them already a, a hundred or so years prior to this. They had already been gone into Assyrian captivity and had t- been taken off the land for them. They had already gone into their captivity 120 or 30 I can't remember how many years it's quite a few 100 years. That's 100 or more years ago. So in 722 is when they went into their captivity, right? And then in 605 began this, this exile for the southern tribes. They had not learned from their sister. They had not learned. And so God had warned them. So we looked at this Jeremiah 29, 1 to 14, and in there, what does God tell them? What had God already told them previously? Yeah. Oh, very interesting. He said to them, um, go to Babylon and settle there, basically, right? In verses 4 to 6 of that passage, right? He also warned them about what? About people who are going to come and say something different. What did he tell them? There are going to be false prophets that are going to come and try to deceive you. Don't listen to them, right? Right? When they come to you and say to you, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Remember, we're in covenant with God. God's a good God. He's a loving God. You know, he wants good for you. He wants you to be happy, right? Is that not familiar? Yes, God. No, I'm kidding. All my life, I can remember early in my years of walking with the Lord that that was such a strong message in the church of God just wants you to be happy. It still is, oh. yeah. Fortunately, we're not in a church that just gives that message. But yes, there are many churches to this day who still are all about prosperity and happiness, right, for the Christian believer. And that's all they say. Me, 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 me. That's right. Yes. Uh, Yeah, people have mixed up God's word. Jesus told us us he wanted us to be full of his joy. But some people think, oh, that means I should have a great life and be happy. Right. Right. And quite honestly, what does God desire above you being happy? He wants obedience. He wants you to be holy. Holiness over happiness. That's what God wants. If you're holy before him, I think you will find that deep joy, which is happiness for the Christian. Because in spite of your circumstances in life, you will be filled with that sense of over... uh, uh, you know, what do, they, what do they say? It's that, it's that uh, surpassing understanding kind of a thing that nobody can quite explain it fully, but there you are in the midst of all these horrible things, and yet you still have a smile on your face. You are still praising Jesus. You are still walking faithfully with him. Why don't you stomp your feet and shake your fist at God and walk away? I think I remember Lot's wife saying that to Lot, yeah. right? Just curse God and die, right? Oh, it was Job, you're right, sorry, not Lot, Job, wrong guy, I was close, Job, yeah, you're right, she just turned this pillar, so they're all pretty bad, all those, have you noticed how often the wives are in big trouble here? Um, Yes? Absolutely. Yes, yes that ultimately what he wants is for us to be conformed into the image of his son. That's what he wants for us. That's holiness. That's what God desires. So previously through Jeremiah, he said, don't be deceived, right, by those false prophets. They're going to come. So he told them, you're going to have these false prophets come. You've got to be careful. Pay attention when they show up. Be, be forewarned. And he, and he said to them also that they were to go, um, go into Babylon and settle, right? Go ahead and settle in there. Build your homes. Make, make your family lives. All these things. Why? What did he tell them in verse 10 was going to happen for them? There would be 70 years of captivity by who? By Babylon. Right. So when Jerusalem, pr- prior to this third siege happening, right, had it been 70 years under the thumb of the Babylonians? So what had they done with the word of God through Jeremiah? That's it. They just ignored it, didn't they? They were told to settle in Babylon. Babylon. In four to si- verses 4 to 6 of that Jeremiah 29. And then they were also told that their captivity would be for 70 years. And it would be in, in Babylon. And that was in verse 10 of that Jeremiah 29. So they had been told previously. So it wasn't just through, Jer- uh, through Ezekiel. But it was previously through Jeremiah. Whom, by the way, they had ignored. Whom, by the way, was also God's prophet, through whom God had given many visions and many oracles and many burdens, right, to share with the people. And they, they re- rejected it and refused it. So this is what, th- through Jeremiah, yeah. Did I say Jeremiah? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so, huh? Oh, good, okay. Okay. Okay, so we have uh, chapter 12. Now we're going to go into chapter 13 and follow the progression then of what's going on in chapter 12. Um, w- so in ch- before we move out of there, though, let's go ahead and title that chapter because you see the events that are happening there. You see what they were told right, was going to happen. We got to go forward and look at the conclusion of it, how it actually worked itself out through the writings in uh, Jeremiah 52 and also in his Second Kings. So what do we know about this chapter, then? How would you uh, title a theme on this chapter 12? (laughs) Okay, immediate exile. No more delay was the phrase, right? No more delay. What's going to happen? Exile and My word will be performed. That's another really good possibility for for a title on that. No longer delay. My word will be performed. I like that one too. And no longer delay. Exile and captivity, right, for these people. I picked um, a verse 11 where it says... Say, say, I am assigned to you, as I have done, so it will be done to them. In other words, as I, as I, Ezekiel, have shown you through my demonstration, as I have picked up the baggage and covered myself and snuck out by night in your sight. Remember, that was a key repeated phrase in that chapter, right? In, in their sight. He says, as I have done, so it will be done to them, them Israel, and they will go into exile, into captivity. Okay, so I picked that verse. Do you have another verse that you guys think is really significant that kind of wraps up everything that's being said here in chapter 12? Okay. Wow, that's a good one too. And that one actually does a good job of grasping the fullness really of the totality of, of the book of Ezekiel and saying, look, every vision, not just this vision, Every vision of God. Now, for you and I, that can be really profoundly significant because that takes us into those things which we, at this point, know have not yet been fulfilled. The things which God has given to us through, for instance, John, right? About the end time activities that are yet to come for us. So just like Israel in the day that this was written through Ezekiel and through Jeremiah to those people, his people, Israel, God has written to you and I and given us a word through John of the end times that are yet to come. And are we heeding? Are we heeding that, that word? Do we really believe that God will do, as it says here, uh, he will fulfill every vision? So many people do not believe in a literal fulfillment of God's word. They don't believe in a literal kingdom. A millennial thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. They don't believe that literally God will save all Israel and put her back on her land and do for her exactly as he has said. He's gonna do it, but in his turn. He will do it, and he will do it in his timing. And we and Jesus spoke of this with his disciples, speaking of the signs of the end of the age. And when will it happen? Is their question to him. Remember? And he said, look, I'm going to tell you the signs to be looking for. And these are the things which are going to take place. And he gives them a rendition of all these things also. So we have the words of Jesus. We have the words of John. And we know there's a day coming when these things will literally happen. Were they believing that God was going to literally do these things? No, no they weren't. So let's look into the next chapter and see how we see this this problem developing how did this problem come about for them okay so we're in chapter 13 now there's a major player here in chapter 13 and who are they the prophets and what is the ultimate message to those prophets Whoa! Verse 3, whoa. I don't know if you marked that word, whoa, or not. It's only mentioned twice in here, but there are significant marker points in here. Uh, Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, whoa, whoa. Okay? Now, you see "woe" used in uh, the Revelation through John as well. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There were three major woes in the unfolding of God's end-of-the-age plan, right? The next woe, if you've not marked it, I want you to mark it right now. It's in verse 18, and it says, and again he he, prelu- he precludes it beforehand. He says, "Thus says the Lord God, woe." Okay, so you see that twice. Those are both key markers, and they introduce to us these false prophets, don't, doesn't it? He says, "Woe to." Yes, that's another key word. So our key word here on the prophets, let's let's just kind of make a little list. It's one of the things she asked us to, to look at is, what do you learn about the false prophets here in chapter 13? Because would you say that it would be important for you and I to kind of know about the character and the workings of the false prophet? Oh, yeah. Do you think it's changed in any way from the days of, of Ezekiel to today? No. Do you think they're... Their character, their motivation, their inspiration in any way has changed. No. Not really. The times have changed, but it's the same old story, right? Same old song. That's right. They don't change. Okay. So what do we know about, the, about these false prophets? What does it tell us? They're foolish. Okay. Foolish. Their own inspiration, it says. Isn't that interesting? Their own inspiration in verse 2. They follow their own spirit. And have seen nothing. In verse 3. Now this is really interesting because now we have a little, um, a little pictorial thing that an imagery statement that's given to us in verse four. How, what does he compare their prophets to in verse four? <laughs> Did you see my little fox on your chart? So there's your little fox. He says your prophets. In, this is in verse four. Your prophets have been have been like foxes among ruins. Okay, ha- have been. The word "like" gives us the uh, the understanding that he's giving us imagery, right? Like foxes among. I love the fact that God uh, uses the language that we uh, that we can understand. The words like "like" are those little key trigger words that tells us that he's not saying they are foxes, he's saying this is the imagery I want you to understand that they are like. So what do we know about foxes? Did anybody do a word study or did anybody do some research in your commentaries about the foxes? What would, what would be their understanding? Yeah. Okay, so foxes is this word right here. It's 7776 and it mean it does mean fox it also means a burrower if i can spell that burrow or a jackal Oop, al jackal boy that's pretty bad. I think that's right. Or, or a jackal. Now, I'm not going to write the rest of this out, but you and I, let's just discuss this. What do we know about a fox among ruins? Now, what are they talking about among ruins? Where would that be, theoretically, if you're thinking of it in the world? Where, where, where are the ruins? Where are ruins? They're out in the wilderness areas where things are just kind of dusty and dirty and not a whole lot out there right and one of the reasons they're ruins is because the people have left and deserted right so if you're a fox living among ruins what do you like okay (laughs) a scavenger Scavenger. okay the idea of a scavenger kind of comes to my mind what else You're you're preying on anything that gets within your within your why because you're hungry and you want to you devour anything that gets anywhere close to you. So you're out there always looking to devour. To, it kind of makes me think of a passage, seeking to devour. We have an enemy that seeks to devour us, don't we? And also the little foxes that eat away at the vine. Yes, yes, and that's another verse. That's exactly right. So we see them being these, the imagery of this is they're, they're the very clever. They have to be very clever, right, because they're seeking, yes, sly. And they sneak around, sort of. They sneak up on their prey and and pounce on them. So they're capable, however, of successfully doing that, right? Because they're still living out there among those ruins. They are actually eating something and staying alive. So they're successfully um, basically cornering their prey and devouring them, right? Um, The idea of a jackal in particular kind of makes me think of those that work in packs, and how they're very aggressive also. Like you know, yeah, what do they say about bad company? Corrupts good morals, and also bad company uh, b- Bad company loves company, right? They, they don't go alone. They like to bring with them a friend or two to back them up. The bad bully on the playground, does he show up alone usually? No, no. no he doesn't come alone. <laughs> he comes with two or three of his younger youngerlings or whatever, in order to be successful and to to approach and be more scary and more powerful or have a stronger presence. So this is what these foxes are. This is what he's, the imagery here is is the idea of this sneaky jackal, basically, that's coming in and and trying to aggressively corner its prey. So then he goes on, let's look at the rest of this. What are some other uh, identifying qualities Drop down into verse six, um 16 sixteen. I've got some others in here. They say that the Lord has told them what the Lord has no word. Yeah. They say their word comes from God. Well, they see falsehood and lie divination. So that one is in verse six? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, and, th- and you're right, they see falsehood. This is one I think is quite interesting, by the way. Have you ever talked to somebody who says that they actually, that they have had a vision from the Lord and now they have a word for you and they are absolutely convinced of it? Do you think they've had a vision? No, not always. Well, we know it's not from the Lord probably, now, I'm not saying that it always is or it always isn't. Because Do you believe there are true prophets today who see things that God reveals to them for the purpose of protecting God's house? Yes. Absolutely. So there is an appropriate use of those same spiritual gifts and those same spiritual um, encounters that, that we can still have with God today. So what was true then is t- can be still be true today, today. But what it has to do is line up with the word of God. That is already written and recorded, right? That's already canonized for us. Yes? And these prophets that were left back in Jerusalem, the people that were left were the poor and the ones that didn't have anything to offer Babylon. Yeah. And they were praying on them. Yeah. They were giving them false hope that this was all going to go away. Yeah, and yeah. I find it comforting that God calls them out because it wasn't just the nobles in that that he said, I'm going to deal with you. He still looked after the ones that were left. Mm-hmm. That's right. He both judged and pro- or protected, depending upon, right? right. Yeah. So we, we, they say that they see falsehood. So they're seeing something, but it's false. That's, that was my point. They, they are seeing something, you know. Sometimes people see things, but you've got you to gotta question, is this a spirit from the Lord, or is this a spirit that's from the enemy? Uh, in 1 in John, it says that we're to discern the spirits as to whether they are from the lord or not right whether they are true or not and what is our plumb line by which we know whether they are truly from the lord or not that has to line up with the with with what god has already said in his word and this is where these men were were saying falsely jeremiah Isaiah previously to that, and others had already stated, "Thus saith the Lord." And many of the things that they had said had already proven true, which proved them to be true prophets from God. Right? And these things were recorded for them in their in their written records. They knew what "Thus saith the Lord" had already been, and now they have false ones who are seeing falsehood and they're contradicting, or contradicting. What God had already said. But God says you got to test the spirits. There you go, and that's what First John is about. You got to test the spirits to see if they're it from the Lord. Yes, yes. yes. You in verses ten and sixteen, that's exa- he yeah. says they have misled my people, saying peace, but what? there is no peace. Had, what did Jeremiah say? Oh, there's going to be peace? <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't mean that. Uh, God <laughs> 5 says, uh, "You didn't build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle. So that's a, you know, I mean, he's not talking about going down in land. Okay. Well, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and do that with the with, let me do it in this one here. Try to pick a different color I haven't got. Okay. So this is about the false prophets. And now let's look at them. What did y- what had the you of this text saying, the you meaning the, the Jews who are hearing from these false prophets, what do you do about what you're hearing? You're hearing these false lie and lying divinations from them. They, are, they say that they're from God, but they're not, right? They follow their own spirit. They're foolish. They're following their own inspiration. And he says about you, what, what have you not done? What he just said is you have not You have not gone up into the breaches. Now, what is that talking about? I looked up the word breaches. Did anybody look that up? (laughs) Yeah, it's basically gaps or holes in the walls. All it means. It's pretty obvious. And he says also of them, nor did you what? Yeah, build the wall around the house of Israel. Now, why would they have done that? Or why should they have done that? Did God tell them, go out and build the wall around Israel? No, No, he hadn't exactly said that. But what had he told them? Previously through Jeremiah, he said, what? What's going to happen to you guys? Your enemy is going to come and besiege your city. What should they have been doing if they had believed that? They should have gone out and built up their wall to protect it, right? Instead, they didn't fix their walls by going up to make true repairs on those breaches, those gaps in the wall, nor did they build their walls up to make them bigger and stronger. Instead, what did the false prophets do? Yeah, th- they were teaching them peace, peace, but what were they doing to those walls? Whitewashing them. Did you see that? Plastering it over with whitewash. The wall... Say it again. I, I don't think they're talking about physically building the wall around the person, because They had the wall under the, the, the sea. So, I mean, they were office But room, he's... Off of true, but he, what he's saying here to them is you didn't do anything to respond to the true prophet. You didn't yeah. fix the walls, and you didn't build the walls. Now, I'm not telling you that God was telling them to do that. But what he's saying to them, in essence, then, let's say, okay, equals, what does this equal? And, didn't you, and, and you didn't believe me, right? Yeah. You didn't believe me, me meaning God, right? Right? You didn't believe me when I told you through Jeremiah I was sending Babylon up against you. You didn't believe me. You didn't even do what normal people would do. If, if the news radio got on today and said there's a huge tornado ca- coming towards Austin, you need to, hu- you need to hunker down, you need to, build, you, know, you need to do all the things that you should get, get water, get flashlights, get candles, uh, board up your windows, right? You should be doing those things, right? But if you don't believe him, what? You take your, you take your, your, your beach towel and your flip-flops and you go to, to, the, to the lake and you spend the day out there and then what happens while well, you're just ignoring the warning? The whole Your whole house falls down. And that is what God was saying here to these people. Look, instead of listening to me and believing me, you did not do what you should have done in response to what I said. You didn't believe me, he said. And you know what? Not only that, but these prophets basically would do what to those breaching walls? Paint them with whitewash. And what does that do for uh, an old crumbling down wall? Makes it, like Makes it look good. Is there a verse in the New Testament that you think about? The whitewashed tombs? Yeah, yeah in, in Matthew where Jesus says those, those Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they, they whitewash the tombs. They, they are like whitewashed tombs. Tombs, they look good on the outside, but what's inside? Dead man's bones. That, to me, is what this was saying about the idea of them going out and whitewashing the walls, but they should have been filling the breaches in the hole and building the wall up stronger if they had actually believed God. But quite honestly, if they had actually believed God, they would have repented, and then God would have done What? he would have relented on his judgment, right? Interesting, huh? So you did not, you didn't believe me, you didn't believe uh, Jeremiah, J- Jeremiah. Um, and you allowed yourself to be deceived. Okay, so here's what they did do. You, di- you did not, you did not do what you should have di- done. There's a contrast. So here's a nice little contrast statement to what's going on in this particular chapter. You did not do what basically what you should have done, what you, but what you did do is you believed the lies, right? Y- you did not believe me, you allowed those false prophets to come in among you. Can you see my writings from the? I know you guys are way back far. You need to move forward. <laughs> There's a couple of chairs up closer, but um, you will get my chart. So hallelujah, right? She's <laughs> <Just> going, yay. <laughs> All right. So that, get, that takes us through chapter 13. So then let's move on to chapter, uh, you know, well, what we ought to do, though, is cover the idea of thus sa- saith the Lord. What did the Lord tell them in chapter 13? What do we see about thus says the Lord in chapter a, uh, 13? Well, he says, I'm against your magic hand. Yeah. They, um, okay. So my hand will be against them. Right. Them who are deceiving you, right? Yes. Yeah. And about those false prophets, what? What's God going to do with them? They will enter the of wow. Right. They will not enter the land. Interesting because they're already on the land. He's telling them they won't enter the land. So what is that talking about? They won't, the exile. they won't survive the exile and come back. And they won't enter into the the true promised land, which would be God's eternal kingdom, right? right. Yeah. Um, they will not even be written where in verse 9? In, in the register of of the house of Israel. Wow. Do you remember some passages in Revelation where it talks about God blotting their name out of books yeah. right yeah. yeah the and if a, when a name is blotted out, what happens to that person in regards to the the inheritance of that land It's gone it's gone. They will not be written when we studied Malachi after we were doing one of our other stu- i think we were doing um Revelation, I think, at the time when we did a detour, we did Malachi. I can't remember the order of it. But in Malachi, we saw the people going back to rebuild after all this had happened, and they were on their way b- coming back. And in there, there was one family that didn't have their registry of their lineage. And what happened? That was the book of Ezra, wasn't it? Ezra, is that what I said? No. Oh, I said Malachi, Malachi. Malachi. Ezra. Yeah, that's Ezra, that's correct. <laughs> Ezra, thank you. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mary. It's old age. <laughs> it's my brain. Uh, we've studied so many, <laughs> is, the, is the thing. So Ezra, and in Ezra, they were getting ready to go back to rebuild, and they were taking record of all the families, but they had to show papers to prove their lineage, right? Yeah. But because one of these families is identified in this sto- unstoring, uh, unfolding storyline in that book, and he says and they didn't have their papers, and therefore they weren't permitted right. to come back. They weren't permitted. Well, there's Yeah, but this, I'm talking about in Ezra. Ezra. In Ezra, there's actually a record of this kind of storyline where... Their names were not able to be proven to be in the house. And because they didn't have their records, they weren't allowed to go back. This is where it says, and they will not be written in the register of the house of Israel. They will have no place in the council of my people. Neither will they enter the land of Israel, in verse 9. So this can actually be a great cross-reference with that Ezra account of that family that couldn't prove themselves to being a part of it. So, And then he goes on in verse 13, and he says, what will he do? They won't do certain things, and what will God do? Mm -hmm. There's there's that key word wrath that comes up in this book that God is going to do uh, upon them or put put upon them his wrath. A violent wind will break out in my wrath and in my anger, a flooding rain and hailstones to consume what? In verse 13, to consume what? What had they done with the walls? Those plastered, whitewashed walls. He's going to send a flood against them to destroy Isn't that an interesting imagery when you think about the fact that these were false prophets trying to mislead these people They did to the point that they whitewashed walls that should have been fixed and should have been built up. They should have believed what God had said was coming at them. They didn't do anything to prepare for what God had said, and they whitewashed these walls, and God says, I'm going to take those whitewashed walls, and I'm going to tear them down and then you will and you will know that I am the Lord. There is that key repeated phrase again in verse 14. He says it again in 23. What does he talk about in the next segment of chapter 13? False, prophets. false visions. False visions of wi- of who? The first part was about these men, right? It's going to be women. Now, this time he talks about the women who are also false prophets. And so women we don't get off the hook. The false prophets who are men, but guess what? You women, too. Now, these women are described as a little bit different light. They're, they're ta- they're, it seems to be more about what kind of a thing. Divination, what, divination and witchcraft and magic and so forth. Some of the things in there, they don't even really know what they are for sure. It talks about making veils for the heads of all sizes of people. In other words, from every age group of people would have these veils to wear, um, these bands, the magic bands that they would put on their wrists. Does anybody have any experience with any of that from ancient days? From there was a mention in the homework about uh, Kate Arthur talked about. In today in Israel, you'll go and they'll s- they'll have uh, vendors selling bands currently to protect you from the evil eye. That's the Kabbalah. Yes, you know what Kabbalah is, right? Kabbalah is a mix of mysticism and Judaism blended together, and it's called Kabbalah. That's that one little hand that you'll see. It's, a, it's very pretty, and you'd be very tempted to buy a piece of jewelry. Don't. It's a hand, and in it has scrolling. It, it, it looks like, um, um, uh, what is that uh, yellow stuff in Turkey that they do on the hands? It looks like tattooing. Henna, the Hannah the already kind of looks like the Hannah writing, but it's very colorful, blues and reds and whatever. And that's Kabbalah. It's a sign for Kabbalah. It'd be like wearing your, your Christian cross. They wear a Kabbalah hand. So don't buy those, and don't buy them for your grandchildren or anybody, okay? <laughs> those are not good. Pardon? Judaism and mysticism, or, or New Age, even kind of, a New Age kind of a thing. It's where that, n- that recent movie, Noah... That just came out? That's where Noah comes out of his Kabbalah worship. A lot of it's, yes, out of the Kabbalah and about mysticism. It's, it's kind of a blend of two or three things. They've pulled it all together to get that movie. Yes, they're crystals and all that, right. So the women are told they also prophesy from their own inspiration, right? So it's a, a, a comparative thing. You, this was interesting. You hunt down the lives of my people... Right? In other words, you destroy Christians, you destroy people who love me by your false teaching, by your enticing them through things like magic bands and veils and some kind of a system. That, right. It says, but what do you do? You preserve lives of others for yourself. You draw in your own worshipers, so to speak, into your system of worship. And therefore, in verse 19, what do you do? Now, how is it that, that, that a false prophetess can pull in somebody into a false system like Kabbalah or any of those others? If I draw you into Kabbalah such you begin to worship in that manner, how does that profane God's name in, in the context of what he's saying here? He's no longer the one God. He's yeah. The what is Israel supposed to be to the eyes of the world watching them? Set apart. Do you remember? I think it was in the book of James where it talked about um, these things that you do. Basically, and the world sees you, it it uh, brings um, it it causes to. It's an abomination, basically, to God's name. It profanes God's name, right? Because people look at you. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, but you you pull out your Torah. Torah, or not Torah. What are they called? The tarot cards. Thank you. <laughs> you know those things. <laughs> obviously, I know nothing about the tarot cards, and or you read your horoscope, or you um, play, a Ouija board. play a Ouija board. Yeah, any of those kinds of things, which would draw you in such a way that you end up being looking like to somebody who's watching you that you're not a Christian. You're walking in the ways of the world. And when you do that, what does God say here? In verse 19, what do you do? You profane my name. Don't think you're off the hook, class. That just because you're not Israel in this ancient history recorded message here, that you don't do these things. If you and I do in any way deny the word, the truth of God's word, we don't stand up for what is true, what we know is true. We don't have the standard of d- sound doctrine as our plumb line of truth. If you dabble in the things of the world and people look at you and yet, yet you, cl- you claim to be a Christian, you profane God's name. Right. That's what he's saying to us. Mm-hmm. Yes. And means treat the common. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 right, it's interesting to me how they want to do both, it's like, it's not like they destroyed God's temple themselves and just moved on, they didn't just deny God and move on, so that at least there was a clear cut, I mean, to me, it's better if a person says, no, I'm not a Christian, I can work with that, right. what's worse is when someone says, oh, no, I'm a Christian, But they're living with their boyfriend. They're cheating on their taxes. They're treating their family members horribly. They, every other word out of their mouth is bad, you know, or false. You know, I I hear people cursing. I hear people maligning one another and gossiping and being mean-spirited. And I think, and you're calling yourself a Christian. This is far worse than the man who says, oh, no, I don't believe in God, and then does those things. At least you can clearly define. But Israel was saying they belonged to God, but they weren't living it. You know, you have to ask them what their definition of a Christian is. Yes, yes. And don't you think that's what God is doing here? He's saying, look, you've got these false prophets. I told you what was true. And through Jeremiah, many of his things had already come to to truthfulness, so they had the standard of sound doctrine, but they weren't listening to it, and they weren't they weren't following it. Yes, it, I'm trying to find it, but maybe somebody knows where it is in Deuteronomy somewhere. Isn't there a test of prophets that Moses gives? Probably. It, it, it's, I mean it's essential. It has to come true. Yes, we actually saw that in one of our homework verses. Yeah, let me. I'll look for that one, James. And I, I'll bet. It was in our homework, because I, um, I don't remember, but I do remember that it had to come true, and I saw that just this, just this week. Okay, so that takes us, and now let's, we've only got 10 minutes, but this last chapter, wow. This one preaches. We could have an entire week of sermons on just this one last chapter, chapter 14. I loved chapter 14. In particular, I just want to jump to the end so that we don't miss it. So Okay, in particular verses twenty-one to twenty-three of chapter fourteen. So we know chapter 13's title is "Woe to the False Prophets," right? V- and in f- and, and thirteen, and then fourteen. At the end of fourteen, after all the insight that we get there, we end up saying about what do we see about who the Lord is and about what He's going to do in, in those last verses. Yes. Okay. So we. N- s- Yes. Okay. So we know that's what he's going to do. But what do you see in those verses? where, Where there's a key word, comfort. Did you see it? He says it twice, in verse 22 and in verse 23. There's another couple of key words in 22 that says conduct and actions. Did you see it? And mark it. And in 23 he says it again. So. When you see the word yet at the, at the beginning of verse 22, that's one of those things where it's kind of like a but, okay? And you can do, use it as a contrast. And so here he's saying, yes, I'm going to judge, which is what Marion brought up, that verse 21. Right. But, or the word yet, yet what? What's the word of comfort that we have at the close of this? There will be the remnant, yet behold, survivors will be left in the land, and, and what is going to happen to you and me, and to, in this case, anyone who would survive this, wh- when they see what? I want somebody to go to Hebrews chapter 12 and read for me verses 10 and 11. I saw, I mean, when I saw this, man, it just jumped out at me like crazy. And I thought, wow, this is exactly what we, for you and I to really gather from uh, uh, what we're looking at Ezekiel, we need to constantly be going into New Testament application for us, right? We have to see how this applies to you and me today, because we want to learn the lessons that they did not learn. We want to learn those lessons. So what does it say in Hebrews 12, 10 and 11? wow. Okay, so it's saying in there that although discipline at the moment that it's occurring seems painful, right? Would you say that Israel felt pain when God brought famine and plagues and, and sword and so forth against it? Okay, when God did that, that was a discipline from the Lord, was it not? His, his intention was not to utterly destroy his people or his nation. It was to do what? discipline them right because he says he says but look when this is all said and done when this is all over you are going to be comforted why because what I've done, I've done in vain. that's right what i am doing whatever it is that i do i it is not being done in vain it's going to bear a harvest of of righteousness, as it says in Hebrews 12. Discipline produces righteousness for those who will be trained by it. And that's what God was doing right here to Israel at this time. He's saying, look, you're not going to like this right now, but it's necessary. I am going to purge out the evil. I am going to purge out the iniquities of my people. And when they come back to the land, you're going to see their conduct and you're going to see their actions and you're going to be comforted at what I did. Isn't that, that's pretty shocking. How many of you have been in trials in your life where you know it was the Lord disciplining you because you had really messed up, right? Or you had not dealt with a certain sin in your life. It's now God is bringing it down basically on your head, making it impossible to ignore it. Did you enjoy that? No. Was that a lot of fun? Yeah, no, not a lot of fun. Yes, Dawn. In Well, all of us, yeah, well, cert- and, and what I'm saying is individually, we need to examine our own heart and say, am I in any way profaning God's name? And if I am, I would like the discipline of the Lord, and actually before the discipline comes, you have opportunity to fix it. God sends His prophet. What has God given to you and I? His written word. We have the Word of God right before our faces, he gives and He get and so yeah. So in His Word, we know the truth about who Jesus is, what He did, why God sent Him what he expects of us, what sanctification is all about for the, the believer. It's not about working for salvation. It's about living out our life in a way that glorifies God the Father, who's supposed to be dwelling within us, rather us than us profaning. Spirit, hmm? He gave us his spirit. Yes, he gave us our spirit so that we could. I will. That's what we said back in chapter 10, I think it was, of Ezekiel. He said, in the new covenant, which is where you and I are, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my precepts and statutes. But guess what? If you resist the spirit, if you quench the spirit, as it says in Galatians, then God's discipline, and then Hebrews 12 says, Look, no discipline at the time seems pleasant. But if you will be trained by it, it will produce a harvest of righteousness. And that's what God desires from us. And he says in, in that you will be comforted because when you see the outcome of the conduct and the behavior of the person who's been trained by God and submitted to his discipline in your life, mm-hmm. you will be comforted because you will know his word was not in vain. That's, a, that's hard. Would you say that's hard? Very hard. These people did not want to do it. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe Jeremiah. They allowed the false prophets to come and tickle their ears because they liked the whitewashed stones. They didn't want to think that the enemy Babylon was actually coming. I saw. There's a tendency, and some of churches even have gone that way, is, is to uh, ignore the spirit and try to keep the law under their own strength. hmm And they basically fail. At, yes, at yes. But, I mean, there's uh, churches out there the supposedly Christian churches that teach you to lose your salvation. So you right, you better, right. You know, do these things. Or right, going to right. I can tell that for me personally, what I never understood was the, the three verb tenses of salvation. And because it wasn't clearly defined for me that there is justification, which is God's work, and it's all by grace, and all you do is, is simply believe him. But what I didn't understand was the verb tense of sanctification, where it says that now that you're in faith, you're in covenant with me, and you have covenant responsibilities to honor me not profane my name before the world. Sanctification is a whole different thing, and that's not earning your salvation. It's not working for salvation. It's living out salvation, right? No, 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 you're not. You, and you can't earn sanctification, sanctification is a verb that it's something w- that occurs as a result of your obedience, and then of course, glorification is that third verb tense which we look forward to yeah <laughs> we're all waiting for that one, yes. Can you imagine Ezekiel sitting on your couch at home watching the news right now? No, he'd be horrified. Ezekiel would be just shaking his head and at Jeremiah, he'd be weeping all over everything. You know? <laughs> yeah. They would. I mean, because of the the sin that we see in the world going on. I just wanted to make sure that we covered the fact that you know what? God has a purpose in all of this that he's doing with Israel in these Chapters that we are reading here. His ultimate goal is our sanctification, and his glory, and most importantly, his glorification. We talked about this yesterday in Sunday school class. What does God really want most of all? His name to be honored. Secondly, that you become holy and walk and be like like a child of God is to be. One thing that I noticed going back to the prophets, prophetesses. Mm-hmm, yeah, the women. The women. Yes. Bread, they yeah. Yes. False words. That's a good cross reference. Sure. The and they like, like, of yes. so and want to sell it. Yes. so people. Good, good and point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly, and you've got to measure, like I said earlier, the standard, like I sat in on the top of that hill there in Greece. The lady says, bring your pot, whatever message you have heard, you bring it to the standard and you lay it into the standard of God's word. Does it fit? If it doesn't, what do you do with it? Take it to the refuge pile and you break it. If it does fit, it's useful. You fill it with the wares, you take it to the agora, and you sell it to the masses, right? Yeah. All right, so the last one, the last chapter 14, we're out of time, so we're not going to get to go through the whole thing, but in essence, on the whole, what did you see going on in 14? What was God's, God doing here? In 1 to 5, what does God see? Idol. Idols in their hearts, so what, do we, what does that tell us about God? And he can see in our hearts, all right? He examines our hearts. I thought about um, back in Ezekiel 3, too, where he says, Every man is accountable to me, including you, Ezekiel. And you tell them whether they want to hear or not. And each man is responsible for their own, their blood will be on their own head if you tell them and they don't listen. But if you don't tell them, what? You're just now you're going to be in trouble with me, <laughs> exactly. And 6 to 8, what do we see God Giving them as his word in reply to those idols on their hearts. He tells him, Repent. He says, This is my answer to you. You're going to come to me and inquire of me when you've got idols in your heart. I'm going to tell, tell you, this is my reply repent. Repent of those idols, or I'm going to cut you off, right? Um, in 9 to 11, then he says, What? Yeah, talk of punishment for your iniquity. It, this is it. Punishment for all who do iniquity. By the way, he talks about the prophets and the elders there. And basically, what he's saying here is, look, guys, you don't get special treatment just because you're a prophet and an elder. Your position, your title, your name—none of that gives you special favoritism. All will be judged. And I—I thought of um, uh, Ro- is it Romans two that God is impartial, right? And, and he talks about the Jew and the Gentile there, right? But he says he's, he, but he's basically saying, look, my judgment is equal and my grace is equal. And there's one standard, and that is you believe by faith in me, you put your trust in me, and you obey me. And those things are all basically synonymous. Obedience and believing are pretty much the same word in God's book, right? And then uh, 12 to 20, he then says, what about deliverance? Because did you see the word delivered as a key word in those verses? What's going to happen? Not on your own, not on someone else. That's exactly right. Gave three examples of people that if if those three people, who, by the way, in the Hebrew mind are very exalted people, surely God would rescue just for the sake of those three, right? And the answer is, uh-uh, no. Those three will be saved, just like the man in linen marked, right, back in the earlier thing. He says, Go and mark those, and those that are marked do not touch, right? Here he says each one individually is going to be judged, basically, right? Each will be delivered by their own righteousness. This lines right up again with chapter 3 in Ezekiel's calling, that everyone's accountable for their own sin and for their own righteousness. Um, now, this is not talking about earning and having it of yourself. It's just saying God looks at your heart, and he knows if you're righteous or you're not, and that's what you'll be judged on, right? And then, and then, so therefore, he concludes, then you will be comforted when you see God's actions are not in vain. So what do you think chapter 14 on the whole is about? When it seems to be s- focusing in on, rather than the nation... It's kind of ca- honed down into who? The individual, isn't it? It's Now it's talking about each man is going to, what's going to happen to them? Their own, their own yeah. I looked, I saw verse 10 was one that I liked, but any of those even in 12 to, to 20 are good. 10, it says, and they, they will bear the punishment of their... Iniquity, and you could add the word own in there. Maybe you make that real clear. They will bear the punishment of their own iniquity, and that would make a pretty good title, I think, for that, for that particular one. It, judgment will come for those who commit that iniquity, and each one individually is going to be judged. And if, you, and if God examines your heart, in, in, and he sees that his spirit is there, his word is there, right? Righteousness is there then you will be spared, but if not, you will be judged. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um twelve through twenty, kind of a little bit reminiscent of um Abraham's discussion with the Lord about Sodom. Yeah. yes righteous man or a kind of That's exactly right. He's, and it's there's another one in the New Testament that's similar, too, kind of the same thing. I just wanted to show you my observation worksheet, how I, how I separated it out so I could distinguish what was the pattern of what was being said here. I did a, a blue highlight on each of the sections where it talks about the ones who are righteous, how God will deal it, and then the other ones I l- left in between. And then I highlighted... The, the points where God said what he was going to do, where we see that he will send famine against it, he will send wild beasts through it, he will bring a sword on that country, and he will send a plague against that country. So you see each of those Basic uh, uh, judgments that God is that He uses as His demonstration to how He will judge. So you see, those are marked very clearly with the green, and then I use the blue to show those who will be delivered. And And the blue made me think of the water and Noah's ark and being saved, and that was my thinking when I did my coloring. But so. Sometimes in your marking on your observation worksheets, it's helpful to highlight in, a, in some way, distinctive way to mark out pa- a pattern of a conversation. This and then this, and this and then this, in order to distinguish what the flow of thought is. It just is mo- it's visually helpful to me. So maybe that would be helpful to you as well. All right. Well, good job, you guys. I, I wish we'd had a little more time to cover every point because there are so many good things. That is Ezekiel 14. Whoo!